Hey, you. Yeah, you. I'm talking to you, listener. Hi, this is Jake, and you are tuned in, as you know, to From the Top, a bookcast for young readers, middle grade readers, any readers, where I will, you guessed it, read to you the first chapter of a book aimed at young adults in the hopes that you will like it so much that you will run out, literally throw the doors wide and hustle down the street to your nearest independent bookstore or library and get a copy of the book for yourself and find out what happens next. This week, we are going to be listening to the first chapter of a book called If I Ever Get Out of Here, written by Eric Gansworth. I hope you will stay tuned. I'm sure you're going to like it. I wouldn't pick a book that you don't like. Would I do that to you? Of course not. Let's get going. To begin this week's program, we look back at last week's episode in a segment called The Reading Reflection. Last week, you heard the first chapter of what I had called Elatso by Darcy Little Badger. When you are starting to read a book um, or teach it, if you're a teacher, um, one thing that is suggested is, especially if uh, it's a name that you're not uh, familiar with or from a culture that you uh, do not have a lot of knowledge about, do a little bit of research, and I neglected to do that, uh, or enough of that, when I selected the book last week. And I had been calling it Elatso. Uh, it had been spelled, or it is spelled, E-L-A-T-S-O-E. And after I had recorded and, and published and released the show to you, loyal listener, I just felt like seeing what information was out there, particularly if there were any interviews with the author Darcy Little Badger. And I came across a video wherein she talked about the book and she pronounced the title Ilatsoe. And uh, she's the author, so she should know how to say it. <clears throat> and so I do apologize for uh, any listeners out there who were screaming at the uh, the podcast, that's not how you say the title, that's not how you say the title. So uh, my reflection is also a learning experience. The book is called In Lots of Way, and also maybe to do a little bit more due diligence on my part uh, next time I might not be sure about how to say something, because no offense is meant, certainly. And now it is time for this week's Attack of the Blurb. In this part of the show, I will give you a few key words and phrases that have something to do with the book that I am going to share the first chapter from in just a moment. Sort of like a mystery, a puzzle, seeing what these words have in common with each other, how they relate to the book. It's really just a shortened version of the summary that you would see about a book on the back cover or the inside jacket. So this is Attack of the Blurb for this week's novel, If I Ever Get Out of Here by Eric Gansworth. Ready? 
Here we go. Tuscarora. Fireball. Snow. Air Force. The Beatles. And last but not least, Vicious. That is the attack of the blurb. All right, so now it is time for chapter one of our book this week. It's called If I Ever Get Out of Here. And again, the author's name is Eric Gansworth. Uh, he is a native person. Uh, so his book, this one at least, and I think his other one that he has written, uh, focuses on native people. And I hope that you will enjoy it. Uh, the book, I know you can't see it necessarily, if unless you have a copy of it, but it's got some really cool paintings in it as well, some cool illustrations. And actually, so did Alatsoe last week too. So uh, that is another reason you might want to get a copy of either or both of these novels, in addition to just being cool books to have in your collection. So let's get going, shall we, with part one, chapter one, If I Ever Get Out of Here by Eric Gansworth. With a little help from my friends. Cut it off! I yelled. Shut up or my dad will hear you, Carson Mastic said. He's not that drunk yet, and I'm going to have a hard enough time explaining how you come down looking like a different kid than the one that went upstairs. For ten minutes, he'd been farting around, waving the scissors like a magic wand. Now he yanked the long tail of my hair from my neck and touched the scissors an inch above my collar. Is this about it? There's no turning back once I start chopping. Yep, that's it, I said. You think cutting off your braid is going to make those white kids suddenly talk to you? Carson's cousin Tammy said. If you believe that, you need brain surgery, not a haircut. What do you care what they think anyway? You've had this braid since, what, kindergarten? Second grade, I said. If you'll remember, someone stuck a massive wad of gum in my hair that year, and I had to cut it all off and start over. Was an accident, Carson said. The same thing he said whenever he did something terrible that he secretly thought was funny. Give it to me, Tammy said. I got better things to do. She grabbed the scissors. Wait. Carson said, I didn't. Suddenly, it was gone. The hair I'd grown for five years. Tammy held it out in her hand, and I turned around. You didn't fix it first, I said. Everyone on the reservation knew that when you snipped off a braid, if you wanted to save it, you had to tie off both ends before you cut. And since almost no one cut off a braid casually, you always saved it to remember the reason you would cut it. What Tammy held looked like a small black hay bale. What am I going to do with that? I yelled. And Carson made the shush expression with his face. You can't braid it loose. It's not boondoggle. You could always do what I do, Tammy said. I have my stylist sweep it up for me. And then when I go home, I let it go in one of the back fields so the birds can nest with it. Your stylist, Carson laughed. 
I'm the one that cuts her hair. In the mirror, my hair fell in strange lengths from Tammy's cut. Let me even this out, Carson said, but with each slice he made, my hair looked worse, like I was in one of those paintings at school where the person's lips are on their cheek and one eye sits on top of their ear. I noticed something else in the mirror I hadn't registered before. When did you get a guitar? Last week, Carson said, picking it up and strumming it, then tossing it back in the corner. I told my old man I wanted one, and he knew I was talking electric, but he brought this piece of crap home, showed me a few chords, said if I'm still playing it in December, we'll think about the electric. Where'd it come from? I walked over to pick it up, but he grabbed it away. Sorry, he said with a fake sad face. The old man said no one else could touch it. We just got it on the hawk. Bug Jemison was hard up for some of his Rhine wine, so the old man bought him a few jugs till the end of the month, and we're holding the guitar hostage. If he don't pay up when his disability check comes in, the guitar's mine. But until then, can you play any Beatles? I asked, hopeful. Beatles? They broke up and ain't never getting back together. Get over it. Right from the beginning, we know that uh, the Beatles are sort of an important part of this story. So we have the chapter title with a little help from my friends, which you may or may not know is a famous Beatles song. And that chapter title obviously uh, is a little bit sarcastic, at least so far, because our narrator here is getting his hair cut off by his friends, but they're not doing a very good job, some help there being. And we also just learned a little bit about the setting of this novel because in our current times, the Beatles have been broken up since like the 1970s. But when Carson says that they broke up ain't never getting back together, get over it, that leads me to believe that this story takes place around the time that the Beatles broke up. Like I said, the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. So we'll see if that's actually true, but that's just a, an educated guess or perhaps what you might call an inference that I'm making. Let's get back to the story. I left a few minutes later, starting my long walk home across half the reservation, still gripping the hank of hair. I opened my fingers a little every few yards to let the August breeze take some for the birds. As I turned the corner at Dog Street, where I lived, I could see my old elementary school. The teachers would be in their classrooms now, decorating bulletin boards with, Welcome to the 1975-76 school year. Look at that. I did it again. I told you that I thought that this would take place in the early to mid-1970s, and we just learned that it did. I feel so smart. <laughs> Decorating bulletin boards with Welcome to the 1975-76 School Year in big construction paper letters. They were going to be puzzled by the fact that the United States Bicentennial Celebration wasn't exactly a reservation priority, since we'd been here for a lot longer than 200 years. 
The sight of the school reminded me how I got in this situation in the first place. It probably started back in third grade when I had become a novelty. When I told my ma I was going to be featured on Indian Culture Night as the only kid from my grade who could speak Tuscarora fluently, I thought she would be happy, since she was always talking good grades this and good grades that. But she laughed like she did when the caseworker asked about my dad's child support payments during our monthly visits to her cubicle. You're just the dog and pony show, Ma said. She spoke a couple of sentences in Tuscarora. Know what I said? She asked. I shook my head. Didn't think so. They're looking for cash to keep the program going. Everyone wants to believe we can rebuild what the boarding schools took away from us. You're Lewis the horse, the proof that it can be done, that kids could learn the traditional language. But I don't know who you're going to speak it to, she said. No one your age speaks it, and no one out in the white world would understand you. Concentrate on subjects that are going to actually help you out. She refused to attend Indian Culture Night. I walked to school myself and did my bit to amaze the teachers. Then I went home the same way I'd gone, on foot. I was known as a carless kid, but for that night, I was the smart kid, and I liked the change. I kept up my grades, moving into advanced reading with the fourth graders, a year older than me, and I kept up with the work, welcoming a change of identity. So when Graffini, the reservation school guidance counselor, sent our names over to the county junior high at the end of fifth grade, they tracked me into what my brother, Zach, called the Smarties section, the Brainiacs. Trouble was, they apparently didn't think any of the other res kids would make it in that section. So they tossed me in with 22 white strangers. Maybe the fact that I'd been good at learning Tuscarora made them believe I'd be able to pick up the white kids' language easily. But with all my supposed brains, I didn't grasp that the way that we talked to one another on the reservation was definitely not the way kids talked in this largely white junior high. On the res, you start getting teased a little bit right after you learn to talk, and either you learn to tease back or you get eaten alive. One girl in my class, Marie, got stuck with the name Stinkpot, courtesy of Carson, when we were in first grade. You can see how I was okay with Brainiac by comparison. You might also be able to see that if I thought calling someone Stinkpot was a good way of making friends, I was in for a fairly rough ride. So what are some new things that we have learned since our last pause? Well... One thing we learn is that our main character, whose mother calls him Lewis the Horse, lives on a reservation, and they speak Tuscarora on this reservation, which uh, he has learned to speak fluently. But he is one of the few kids who can speak that, or speak that so well, And he's kind of seen as, he says, a novelty. He's kind of seen as something special. And so he is sent to a predominantly white school, not on the reservation, in a way to get some, perhaps, attention for the reservation. Uh, But while he is at this white school, he 
first thinks that being different is going to be kind of a cool thing. He welcomes the change of identity, but he starts to feel a little singled out. And uh, so we are going to probably see his conflict between these two parts of his identity, this, this culture clash that he is already facing. And that might be part of the reason why he wants to cut his braid. His braid represents his Indian or Native American identity, and he does not want that to be so obvious. So the first week of sixth grade, I thought I'd come up with nicknames for two kids I wanted to hang out with to show them I was prime friend material. I tried an easy one first, calling Stacy Ladinsky Spacey instead like she was an airhead. And Artie Critcher seemed like a friendly enough guy, so when I noticed that his hair curled out from the front and back like a dirigible, I made the obvious leap and started calling him Blimphead. Stacy maybe just didn't hear me, since she didn't say anything about the name. But when I said to Artie, Hey, Blimphead, you want to sit next to each other and lunch? He said, My hair might have a funny shape, but at least I wash it every day. I don't want your dandruff in my soup, so no thanks. They both stopped talking to me shortly after that. Clearly, the only plan I had for forming friendships had been a spectacular failure. Maybe I needed a new nickname myself, something like The Invisible Boy. I think this is a really interesting part of the novel already. On the reservation, he says, calling each other names is just kind of what you do. And and so that is a cultural difference, perhaps, that uh, the students at this white school don't understand that Lewis is not making fun of them or not intentionally making fun of him. But when we heard that he calls Stacy Spacey and Artie Blimphead, we probably all went, ooh, that's not going to end well, and it doesn't. He doesn't mean anything mean by it, and I would also argue that a lot of kids, when they come up with nicknames for each other, are just trying to be funny and bond. They don't have that mean streak necessarily. Sometimes they do, of course. There are bullies, but Lewis here doesn't strike me as a bully, but it makes him feel bad afterwards, as it should, perhaps, that uh, the other kids do not respond to it, as well as Carson, his friend back on the reservation. So already, from the first week of sixth grade, he's not doing well. And then it got worse. For most of sixth grade, it was like I had a force field around me, like one of those Martian war machines in War of the Worlds, with a death ray waiting to blast the other kids if they made any sudden move in my direction. They just pretended I wasn't there as much as they possibly could. During lunch, we were required to sit with our class at two long tables. In every other section, the Indians gravitated to one another like atoms in some science experiment, but I sank to the bottom of my particular beaker alone. Still, I had to eat, so I'd go to one end of our assigned tables, decide who was least likely to resist when I set my tray down, and inch myself onto the bench next to my reluctant seatmate, 
who usually gave up one butt cheek of room, sometimes even both. The force field kept me inside and everyone else out. I'd given up trying to make friends by Christmas break. This year, I was going to make another shot at it. Thanks to my zero social distractions, I'd kept my grades up, so I remained among the brainiacs for 7th grade. I was hoping someone from a lower track had done well enough in 6th grade that they'd be bumped up to my class and might offer a new door to a friend. I wasn't crazy enough to think it would be someone from the reservation, so I thought the more I looked like everyone else in the class, the better chance I might have with someone who didn't even know about my force field. I'd find out in a couple of days. Even though I'd turned onto Dog Street, I still had a long walk to my house, so I started eyeing whatever cars were going my way. One awesome thing about being from a tiny place where everyone knows everyone and where everyone knows your family doesn't own transportation is that you can usually snag a ride by just sticking your thumb out to hitchhike. Two vehicles later, I was climbing in a car's open trunk, already stuffed full of kids heading for a late summer swim in the dike. What happened to your hair? All of them asked me, shouting over one another. I bet it was lice. Floyd Page said, and they all backed away, exaggerating, pretending they were going to climb out of the trunk. Impossible, I said. I wasn't using your comb. Floyd rubbed my bristles as we laughed. In this way, we communicated in the language we knew best, hassling one another. You're in luck, my Uncle Albert said when I got home. She's not back yet, so you're not officially late. He didn't seem to notice that my head looked like post-tornado TV footage. At that moment, my brother Zach's car pulled in the driveway to drop off my ma. The engine shut off, which meant he was coming in, probably helping with groceries. What the hell happened to your hair? was the first thing Zach said. You look like David Bowie on a bad night. In it, though, Albert said, laughing, registering my hair for the first time. Who's David Bowie? I asked. That's a little later in your musical education, Albert said. So spill it. What happened? Zach was not going to let me off. I cut it. It looks like you cut it, he said, sticking his fingers in my hair with a blindfold on. Just then, my ma walked in, carrying a couple bags of groceries. What is this? She said, staring at my hair. I cut my hair, I said. I'm tired of not fitting in with my class. That two-foot braid just shouted, Reservation kid here, so I got rid of it. Go get the buzzer, she said. What? Either you're going to get it, or I'm going to get it, but before we eat, we're cleaning that hair up, she said, grabbing a towel to pin around my neck. You look like a welfare Indian. I am a welfare Indian, I said. You don't need to look the part, she said. The buzzer was a garage sale purchase. A hair clipper that made more noise than it should have, grabbed your hair like it was mad at you, and sometimes gave off a burning odor while it did its job. She came at me. Five minutes later, the longest hairs in my head were in my eyebrows, and they survived only because they were behind my glasses. The next time you think about caving in to how you believe white people want to see you, she said, sheathing the buzzer in its holster, you remember this. 
She took the towel off me and I dunked my head in the washing pan. The water was cold, but I didn't want all those tiny hairs drifting down my shirt like a million little bugs. Nice look, G.I. Joe, Zack said from across the room, finishing the last of the spaghetti in the serving bowl before I had the chance to get any. Too bad you don't have that patented kung fu grip or you wouldn't need to worry about fitting in. You could just do a Bruce Lee on your enemies. I peeked in the mirror. I looked exactly like what he said. My hair was buzzed to maybe a quarter of an inch, and it stood up straight, like dandelion fuzz that had been spray-painted black. When I went to bed that night, I grabbed the latest copy of The Amazing Spider-Man. Albert periodically supplied me with comics when he picked up his magazines, and I always hoped for Spider-Man. I was glad somebody's world was more complicated and lonely than mine, even if he was a comic book character in a blue and red bodysuit. I reached behind me to pull my braid forward, as I had every night for years, but my fingers touched nothing but stubbly hair and skin. I shared a room with Albert, who lay a few feet away in his bed, thumbing through a magazine. He noticed my automatic gesture. Feels funny, isn't it? Like maybe a piece of you is missing, he said. You get used to it after a while. He closed his magazine. Besides, if you don't like it, it grows back. They buzzed mine when I got drafted and shipped off to Vietnam. Now look at it. He flipped his long hair like he was in a shampoo commercial. But you're going to have to live with it for a while anyway. Hope it was worth it, he said, shutting off his light. And that is the first chapter of If I Ever Get Out of Here by Eric Gansworth. And it was called, with a little help from my friends, the first chapter there. And now we do the three, two, one. Three things that I thought about while reading this that I didn't already share with you in those little breaks, of course. Two questions I have. And one thing that I will try as a writer or one thing that I learned. So... <clears throat> for the three things that I liked about it. I love music, and so I like how this book uh, involves music into it. I'm also a big Beatles fan, so the mention of the Beatles, the chapter named after the Beatles, the whole idea of uh, playing the guitar in it, and on the cover of the book, you see it's like a, a big pair of headphones, I just really love when music is included because music can be very inspiring for people. I also think it's just clever, the, the wordplay in that first chapter with a little help from my friends because are his friends helping him, really, when he's cutting his hair? Um, in a way, I guess you could say yes. In a way, I suppose you could say no. And then obviously his so-called friends at school and his family are even... Uh, his friends, especially his Uncle Albert, which, by the way, Uncle Albert, a Beatles song right there, too. So that is the first thing that I like about it. Second thing I like about it is the glimpse into the Native people's culture about the importance of uh, the braid. I didn't know, for example, about having to tie it off at both ends if you cut it. Um, and just the whole thing about riding around in the trunk of a car. That doesn't seem very safe to me, 
But uh, I guess that's just something that they do. So who am I to judge it? And these other little glimpses we get of what life on a reservation is like and some of the struggles that the characters there, like our narrator, go through. And a third item that uh, I thought about while reading this first chapter is its setting. Not just that it's on a reservation and the school outside the reservation, but specifically the time period, the 1970s. So I was born in uh, the early 1980s, and I know a little bit about the 70s just from really pop culture, believe it or not. Uh, So I know about the Vietnam War a little bit that Uncle Albert refers to and David Bowie and these, uh, these other references. But I think as we get further and further from the 1970s, it's a shame that, um, you know, younger people than I and perhaps even people the same age as myself don't really know about it uh, because it was a very vital and interesting time in our country and in the world's history. So I like that for this book, we are going back in time a little bit. And whether we realize it or not, we're probably going to get a little bit of an education about that time period that we wouldn't from uh, a story set in our modern day times. So I thought about that, and I'm looking forward to more about that time period as we go on. And now two questions that I have after reading chapter one. The first one being, will we see more references to pop culture of the time? We saw David Bowie, we saw the Beatles, and so on. So uh, I hope that we get a little bit more of that, almost like the book has a soundtrack uh, that goes along with it. Uh, That's always kind of fun. I wonder if the uh, author was listening to these songs while he was writing, or if he heard these songs, and that sort of inspired the story for him in one way or another. So that's the first question that I have. The second question is, what other struggles will we see Lewis face uh, as he goes on in this story? The name of the book, for heaven's sake, is If I Ever Get Out of Here. Now, if that doesn't sound like a struggle to you, I don't know what does. By the way, If I Ever Get Out of Here, that's a lyric from a Paul McCartney song. I think it's Band on the Run, If I Ever Get Out of Here, whatever. Uh, Sorry about that, going off on my musical nerd tangent. Uh, But right from the very beginning, we see him literally cutting off part of his Indian identity. And that should probably make us feel a little sad for him, a little little sorry for him. You shouldn't have to do that just to, to fit in. So is the title of this book and everything that comes after a continuation of that, him trying to... uh, put his Indian identity aside so that he can fit in, or will he come to some other happy medium? I guess we'll have to read to see. And for one thing that I'm going to try in my own writing, or one thing I learned is I think I want to write a story that is based on songs based on maybe just one song, like with a little help from my friends, like this first chapter. 
And and by that, I mean, maybe I will uh, be inspired by listening to a song because songs do tell stories. So maybe I will write that story in my own words, of course, not taking the literal story from the song, but being inspired by a song story to write my own spin. Uh, or take a song and uh, interpret the title or the lyrics in some other way. As we said, with a little help from my friends, it sounds like your friends are going to help you out. But is it possible in this story that it's almost a sarcastic title, that his friends don't help him out, or that his friends help him in a way he first doesn't see as being helpful? Either that, or perhaps just write with music in the background and see if that seeps into my brain and and helps me tell a story, whether I realize it or if it's totally subconscious. That might be a fun thing for me and for you as a writer to try. And for the final part of our show today, the Jake O meter, where I give you my score of chapter one of if I ever get out of here on a scale of one to 10, one being the worst thing I've ever read and 10 being among the best things I've ever read. Spoiler alert, I don't think I will ever give a book uh, a one, but I guess time will tell. On the Jayco meter this week, if I ever get out of here, scores at an eight and a half. I really liked what I read so far. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I love glimpses into other groups and cultures that are not my own. I love a book that involves music. I love a book that involves a struggle that is usually an interior struggle, an emotional struggle versus a physical one. Who knows? Maybe there will be some physical struggles later on for uh, our characters as well. Because obviously when we were all teenagers, like this character here, Lewis, we all went through emotional turmoil of our own. I do like that. I struggle myself, and this is what brings it down, perhaps from a 9 or a 10. I struggle myself sometimes with being able to relate to a, a character like this. Uh, I'm a bit confused, to be quite honest, with uh, Lewis's mother here. Uh, and by that, I mean, when we first meet Lewis's mother, she is talking about how she doesn't really want him to go to this other school and kind of show off his Indian heritage. It's not that she is ashamed of it, certainly, but I don't think she wants him to be seen as, you know, just a Indian person, that he is similar in some ways, and that doesn't make him all that different. It doesn't make him a novelty, as he calls it. However, at the same time, when he cuts off his hair, she's really upset about it, which would make me think that uh, she wants him to keep his Indian roots with him and the, you know, the long hair that is a part of his identity. And I suppose you can have both. You can have her not wanting to see him as this strange or different kid while at the same time not butchering part of his identity. So I, I guess what I will say is the 
the motivations of the mother, the feelings of the mother, I, I hope uh, the author gets a little bit more into so that I can kind of understand her psychology. Um, but here in the first chapter alone, I'm a little thrown off, and maybe that's the point. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of From the Top. The book is called If I Ever Get Out of Here by Eric Gansworth. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to send me an email, whether it be with a comment, a question, or a book request. Uh, In past episodes, as you may know, we have a section called The Mailbag, where I read and respond to listener email, listener letters here on the show. Didn't have one this week, so all the more reason to send us one to get on to the show next week. Maybe that will be yours. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you know when the latest episode becomes available. If you could write us a review on whichever listening platform you use to hear this show, we would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much in advance. My name is Jake Lewis. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next time from the top.